All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. It's been a couple weeks, so I'm super glad to be back with you um, and uh, start this new series through uh, just summer in the Psalms. So super glad to be here. Uh, 1946, uh, World War II was over. Uh, The United Nations replaced the League of Nations. The boomer generation was, was begun. My dad was born in 1946. And over in the Middle East, near the Dead Sea, some Bedouin teenage shepherds were watching their goats and their sheep, and they got bored. And so they started throwing rocks, and they started, you know, playing target practice. There was a hole in the side of this cliff, and so they started chunking rocks at it. And uh, one of them maybe should have been a pitcher because he finally, like, hit it, bullseye, right through. And when it went in, uh, he heard something shatter. And so, obviously, they had to go find out what that was. And so they clambered up there, they climbed inside, and when they got inside, they found a bunch of ancient clay jars, and in some of them were scrolls. And word got out about this. The place was excavated over the next several years. More caves were discovered, and thousands of little pieces of fragments of scrolls were discovered, totaling up to about 800 to 900 different manuscripts And we know these scrolls today as the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Around the community of Qumran. And in there, like I said, there were about 800 or 900 different manuscripts found. There's a copy of every book of the Bible is represented in those scrolls, except the book of Esther. But in terms of volume, just bulk, what are the most amount of copies that they found? Most of them were dated around 200 B.C., In terms of volume, the most copies of something they found were psalms. Just lots and lots of copies of psalms. One of the best scrolls that's still preserved today is of 48 different psalms. But this just goes to help underscore something I want to try to communicate to you, which is that you cannot over-exaggerate the importance of the psalms to ancient minds, to Jewish people. Their, their whole life was centered around the psalm. They had psalms that they sang, psalms that they recited at different times. It was just so integral to Jewish life and, and into Christianity as well. When the New Testament writers were writing the New Testament books, of 360 Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, 112 of them are from the book of Psalms. It's by far the most quoted book in the New Testament. And even today, it's perhaps the most memorized by Christians. Not that we've, any of us have 150 psalms memorized, but little portions of from here and here and here and here. You got a little Psalm 37, 23, you know, on and on and on. You got all these little bits and pieces. I remember Psalm 23, I probably memorized it when I was around eight years old in Sunday school. And so whenever it's recited, I, I still recite it in King James because that's how I, I learned it. You can't get that out of you. Um, but this is the book that we're going to begin studying. It's something that was so integral to, to the early church, to um, believers across all of the centuries. And so we're going to study this this summer, uh, a couple of them, right? We can't do 150. We're just going to be doing this for 12 weeks. So we're going to actually look at 14 uh, different ones in that time. And we'll start that today. 
But first, we need to kind of understand some, some background behind it, just kind of set ourselves up, set the book up, some background, some framework, some structure, some authors, like all of these details that will help us as we chart our way forward in the weeks to come. And so a little bit of background, and then we'll get into Psalm 1 and 2. And so just most basic, like on the most basic level, uh, the word psalms, comes from the Greek word psalmoi, which means praise song, all right? And so largely the psalms served as an ancient hymnal for the Israelites as well as the early church. And so that's why you get things like Colossians 3.16, which says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The early church pretty much just sang psalms. That was their hymn book. And just side note, when you're talking about psalms, that's plural, but when you're talking about one, it's a psalm. So we're looking at Psalm 1. Next week, we'll be looking at Psalm 12. So psalm versus psalms, just like song versus songs. And so on one level, these you know, psalms are very much songs. And certain ones were sung or recited at certain times of the year around certain festivals. And so David was a singer-songwriter before singer-songwriters were cool. He was doing that way early. On another level, psalms are like prayers. They're like prayers, which makes the book of psalms utterly unique from all the other books of the Bible. Because all the other books of the Bible are, you know, God speaking to us, but the Psalms as prayers are believers speaking to God. And so it's the one book of the Bible that's written to God. One commentator summing up this, put it this way. In Psalms, the prayers of men to God have become the word of God to man. And so Psalms helps us know how to pray, how to give thanks, how to worship. But Psalms also teaches us how to lament and how to mourn, how to repent. And it even gives expression to those moments in life, those seasons in life, or perhaps those lifetimes that are marked by depression and despair and other struggles that we know as mental health. Anxiety, fear, because these feelings are part of life in a fallen world. And so Psalms isn't absent from these. Like, like all of the emotions we face, both the highs, because joy is all over the Psalms, but also the lows, sorrows in the Psalms, melancholy, dark night of the soul. And this principle of all emotions even informs how we worship in here via songs. Every single week, we want to make sure we work hard. We don't do it perfectly, but we want to work hard to try to make sure that every single week we have a song that a suffering Christian can sing. Because life is not always hoppy boppy, Instagrammable moments. It's nitty gritty. It's hard. It's Come ye sinners, weak and wounded, sick and sore. It's, as we'll sing here in a little bit, Oh, out of the depths I cry to you. In the darkest places I will call. 
That's what we sing, and that's what we find in songs. Uh, my, the men's group that I was working with, and then I stepped out for a while during track season, and I'm about to jump back into, they're studying through a, um, a, a Psalter, um, that, which is you know, all 150 songs that have a devotional with it. And the author's name is Dane Ortland. I'm going to give you a, a quote from it. But, but they refer to these Tuesdays as they get together as Salty Tuesdays. Because they're working through the Psalter. But Dane Ortland, who writes the devotions, writes this about the Psalms. One of the great wonders of the Bible, and in particular Psalms, is that it accommodates the darkest experiences any of us could walk through. We will never experience a difficulty that goes deeper than the Bible addresses. Every pain is accounted for and acknowledged in Scripture. And friends, this is one of the things, like, one of my favorite things about the book of Psalms, is how raw it is, how relatable it is. As I you know, look through Psalms and I turn the pages, I feel like I'm kind of turning the pages of my own life because on one page, you know, in my life, I'm like, praise you, Lord. And then I turn the page and I'm like, how long, O Lord? And then I turn the page and I'm like, your, your love endures forever. And then I turn the page, where are you, Lord? And that's Psalms. And so it helps give expressions to our emotions as we come to God. And it helps show us also that we're not crazy. Other people have felt the same way throughout the centuries. And so praise God that in His kindness He lets us know we're not alone in that. But as you read Psalms, you also have to remember it's poetry. And so it's a little bit different than interpreting just prose. There's going to be a lot of metaphors, there's going to be a lot of similes, there's going to be a lot of word plays. And then there's a bunch of different kinds of psalms, wisdom psalms, royal psalms, lament psalms, imprecatory psalms, thanksgiving psalms, pilgrimage psalms, on and on and on. But here's where I want you to really, really, really listen, pay attention. The book of Psalms is not a collection of random songs and prayers just put together. It is not just a collection of random songs and prayers. No, Psalms has a specific structure to it, telling a specific story centered around a specific, and at that time still to come, Savior, Messiah, King. Like the book of Psalms is ultimately about Jesus even though they weren't all written at once, they were written over about a thousand years by a bunch of different authors, David being the main one, specifically of books one and two. And somebody said, what are you talking about book one and two? Well, Psalms, kind of reflecting the Torah, is five different books that were compiled over the years, put together, and a lot of people think they actually correspond. Book one with Genesis, book two with Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Five books. And again, this isn't random. There's a specificity to this. God had them collected and put together in this order on purpose in order to, again, show us the grand story of reality. This is what Psalms holds up for us. Creation. So book one is very much about creation, the fall, redemption, 
centered in Christ and the coming restoration. And Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the front porch into this whole story. A story that ends with Psalm 150 where there's worship and praise around, listen, the heavenly sanctuary for eternity. New heavens, new earth. This is what's going on in Psalms, and this is where Psalms is going and what it's about. It has a specific structure to it. And so in submission to that structure, over the next, uh, over the summer, we are going to look at at least two Psalms from all five books. Uh, we're going to look at a bulk from book one, that's perhaps the most famous book. All those pretty much were written by David. But we're, like I said, going to get started today with the front porch to the entire thing. And so, would you look at Psalm 1 with me again? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation Of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so, on the surface, this is what's called a wisdom psalm. And it's just laying out, kind of like Proverbs, wisdom to live by. And the psalmist does this by contrasting two characters the righteous and the wicked. And what I want you to notice in verse uh, one is three sets of three. Okay, so like if you're into weightlifting, three sets of threes, you know, you can go heavy on that. It's a good workout. Three sets of three here. Look at the words here. All right, three sets of three. We have three verbs. You've got walking. You've got standing. You've got sitting. All right, all this is in verse one. We've got three locations. Council, the way, and the seat. And we have three groups of people. The wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And I want to pay attention to the verbs specifically for just a minute because this is how unrepentant sin works in our lives. At first, we just walk in it. We just dabble in it a little bit. Maybe we'll walk out of it, walk back into it. And then over time, we begin lingering a little bit and we stand in it for a little while until we come to just sit in it. Which is why we've got to learn that we don't play with sin. And we have to be careful of the company we keep. Because a lot of times we'll start off thinking, I'm I'm just going to play with this sin a little bit. I'm the master and it's the servant. And so I'm going to use it to serve me. But sin doesn't like to be a servant. Sin likes to master. And so over time what happens? You walk, then you stand, then you sit. And those roles become reversed and sin becomes your master and you are its servant 
Right? That, that's how unrepentant sin works and grows. And the way you break the cycle is by repenting. But unrepentant sin, that's how it works. And so the author's saying, don't be like that. Right? Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of scoffers or sit in the seat in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, delight, verse 2, take joy in the law of the Lord. In other words, His Word, the, the Scriptures, the Bible. Get in it, meditate on it, feed on it, think on it. Let it master you. And then when that happens, you become, verse 3, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. And so what the psalmist is imagining here is something that my family experienced last year. Uh, we went out west. You guys gave us a, a month-long sabbatical. Thank you. And we went out west. And in southern Utah, it's just super arid. It's super beautiful, but it's super arid. And the only time you see anything green is like along a river, right? That's where some trees are. Other than that, it's just rock and red and awesome, but arid. And there's trees there because there's water there. The trees have no strength in of themselves. They need water, streams of living water. So their strength, their ability to not wither, their ability to produce fruit, their ability to withstand wind comes from outside of them. And that's the way God's word is as it relates to us. We need strength from outside. We need streams of living water flowing into us. And when that happens, when, even when the wind blows, because the wind will blow in your life, your leaf won't wither, you won't topple. You're rooted. And you'll even produce fruit for others. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff. Somebody's like, what's that? I have never heard of chaff. Well, chaff is like, I mean, agricultural, right? When you would harvest wheat and you would go to winnowing the wheat, the chaff is the, is the light part, like the heavy part, the part you eat, the good stuff falls as you winnow and it falls to the ground and then you'll collect it. But the chaff is just the dust that comes off of it and it is blown away. And this is what... The wicked are like, they are dust in the wind, tossed to and fro by the wind, blown away. They won't stand in the wind like a tree. They will be blown away. And so this is a startling picture of what we are like apart from God and His Word. And so there's wisdom in this, right? There, there's wisdom here. Like, don't be like the wicked. Be like this man who delights in the law of the Lord. Be like this righteous person. Don't be like the wicked person. There is wisdom in this for you and I. But look at verse 5, because here is where we begin to see that maybe Psalm 1 is highlighting a little bit more than what first meets the eye. So verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will 
perish. And so here is the problem. If the wicked aren't going to stand in judgment, then how are we going to stand in judgment? Because we are wicked. Now, you and I, apart from God, left to ourselves, we are all sinners. We're not, do not believe the myth, well, I'm just a good person who does bad things sometimes. No, if you're a good person, you do good things. And so we are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. It's who we are, like original sin. We have inherited this from Adam and Eve. We are wicked. We are chaff. In and of ourselves, we cannot stand before God. The only one that can stand before God is Jesus. And praise God, He stood before the Father for us. Like He is, verse 6, the righteous one for us. And so friends, here's the reality I want you to begin seeing. Is that verse 1 isn't so much blessed is the man who might live this way. It's blessed is the man who did live this way. It's about Jesus. And then, you, I mean, we connect it with Psalm 2 in just a second. And you'll see that. All right? It's about Christ. It's about the Messiah. He is the blessed man of verse 1. Because he's the one who fully and completely and perfectly never walked in the path of, of, of the wicked. He is the one who perfectly and completely and totally delighted in God's law and meditated on it day and night. We didn't do that. He is the one who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, producing blessing for others. In all that he does, he prospers. And so you and I can stand before God because of Jesus. He has given us his record. We have a substitute righteousness. And now we can receive his welcome and will never be cast out. I mean, look, look at the first line of Psalm 1 and look at the last line of Psalm 2. Blessed is the man. And then last line of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so Psalm 1, as part of the front porch is setting up that Jesus is the blessed man of the entire book. Jesus is the one, Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy place. And so Psalm 1 is calling this out for us from the get-go, and then Psalm 2 is coming in right behind it, just putting on display exactly who this blessed man is. And so look at Psalm 2 with me. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. Now, real quick, just studying psalms. Whenever a psalm begins with a question, it is almost always referring back to the psalm that came before it. Okay, That's the case here, especially because there's no superscription even uh, separating them. Like when you get to Psalm 3, you see, you know, it says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. You have these superscriptions. Here with 1 and 2, no superscription. They go together. All right? And so Psalm 1, again, because Jesus is the man, 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Anointed is Messiah. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, because Jesus is the man, blessed, Messiah, Savior, King. Friends, we have no need to worry when the world rages against him and his people. In fact, it's laughable. It's worse than me trying to like, take on Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Like That would be an epic beatdown. It, it, it's worse than that. It's more like ants conspiring against like, a T-Rex from Jurassic World Dominion. There's no competition here. It's laughable. And so friends, when you see that happening, when you see culture growing darker, when you see brothers and sisters martyred for the faith, know that our avenger is coming. He's not ignoring what's happening in this world or in your life. A day of wrath is coming for all those who oppose Jesus and his people. And so Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written from Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so when the nations rage, when the people plot, listen, it's vain. It's laughable. Because God has set his king in the new Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And he who rules invisibly today in the midst of pandemonium will rule visibly on that day in the midst of paradise. And so hang on. T-Rex is on your side. Don't worry about the little ants. Because look at what Jesus himself, what, like Jesus speaks here, verse 7. I will tell of the decree... The Lord, all caps, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Like Jesus is eternally the son of God. We recited the Nicene Creed, begotten, not made. That means eternally. Ask of me, all right, so Jesus is telling us what the Lord has said to him. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Like this is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. This is Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And that day is coming. And Psalms is showing us this right from the get-go, the front porch, 
grand story, showing it to us, telling us Jesus is the blessed man, the eternally begotten son who will come again and make all things right. All injustices will be set right. Judgment will come. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun like a sign of allegiance. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed or blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so returning to kind of some of the wisdom language of Psalm 1, once again, we have a contrast here between two ways to live. The wise. The wise will serve and worship and love with the Lord with reverence and awe. They will find refuge in him. But the foolish will continue to push back against him and reject their only hope for rescue from their sin. And so the question is, which of these two are you? Are you part of the wise? Or are you part of the foolish? Like some of you have already made this choice. You've already chosen to repent, trust Jesus, come into the wise group, but some of you haven't made that choice. And so this morning, even, are you going to be wise or are you going to be foolish? Are you going to serve Christ or are you going to serve yourself? And friends, as I've said before, the, the, the truth is like, you're going to bow to Jesus one way or the other. You don't, you don't really get a choice in this. Philippians 2 says that all will bow and all will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God. And so the option is either you can bow as a trophy of grace now or you will bow as a trophy of justice then. But you will bow and you will be a trophy and you will glorify God either by highlighting His grace or highlighting His justice. And so even the most hardened person who hates God, wants to reject God, have nothing to do with God in the end, is going to glorify God. This is God's supremacy. This is God's power. This is his kingship. And we can get frustrated and mad and hate that all we want. But like ants before T-Rex, it's pretty pathetic. And so something we don't like to talk about. Every single one of us in here is going to die. Some of us, it'll be soon. Some of us, it may be a long time. It's not a joke when I say, I'm either going to do your funeral or you're going to come to mine. I will conduct some of y'all's funerals. Some of y'all perhaps might attend mine. 
we're all going to die at some point. I don't tell you that to scare you. I tell you that just to speak truth. That's going to happen. And so the question is, then what? Is our consciousness just going to cease? And our organic material is just going to rot away? And so life really was purposeless. It was meaningless. There's nothing to it. We're just a collection of cells. Is that the way things are? Well, the Bible teaches that our souls are eternal. And that we will live. Our consciousness will not cease. We will live and we will live in one of two places. Either eternally in heaven or eternally in hell. And the difference between these two things, again, these are the groups we see here, the righteous and the wicked, but the difference is Jesus. But if you're just checking out Christianity, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand. If you're just trying to explore this, I don't want you to think, okay, so Christianity teaches that there's, that there's good people and they go to heaven and there's bad people and they go to hell. That is not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that we are all bad people and Jesus is the only good person. And he's the only one that makes it possible for us to be plucked out of hell and placed into heaven. He is the blessed man who does that for us. He is the one who didn't walk in the way of the wicked. He is the one that allows sinners into the congregation of the righteous one. That's the only way. And so it's not a question of good people, bad people. Like That's not what salvation is about. Salvation isn't so much about what you have done or what you do. It's about what Jesus did. He lived the life that you didn't live. A perfect life without sin. He died the death that we've all been condemned to die. Death for sin. And he rose again to give us a gift that none of us could earn. Forgiveness of sin. And so it's not there's the good people boat and there's the bad people boat. No, we are all like Jesus is the only one in this boat. We are all in the chaff boat, the wicked boat, the sinner boat. But Jesus makes it possible to pluck us and remove us. I'm reminded of Colossians 2. He has, this is chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of. Of sins. And so, friend, if you have not yet chosen to trust Jesus, trust Jesus. Surrender to Him. Place your faith in Him. Like He's wooing you right now, He's drawing you right now. Even as you feel this, like what's going on in my heart and your feet, like that's God at work through the Holy Spirit. Don't refuse that. That's foolish. Accept that. That's wisdom. And that's what Christ wants. He desires to save you, to rescue you, to give you life and hope and a future. It's 
It's his kindness that you are here this morning. He brought you here to hear this message so that the reality of the last line of Psalm 2 might be true of you, even as it is of many already in this room. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so friends, this this is the front porch of Psalms. We'll get into more of it as it comes along, but Jesus is what the Psalms are ultimately about. And so indeed, Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man. And Psalm 2-12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, as we make our way through the book of Psalms in the weeks to come, we do pray that you would teach us and change us and show us wisdom and ways to live our lives, Father. But more than that, we pray that you would make yourself bigger in our minds. That as we spend time meditating and thinking and praying and worshiping, we would see Little by little by little by little, you become more precious in our hearts. And so, Father, help us to delight in your word. Help us to be trees that draw strength from another source, recognizing that our source is the tree, Jesus Father, for any in this room who perhaps has never received you as king, Jesus, for those who have never trusted in you and what you have done, I pray just uh, you work supernaturally and that you would save them. They would repent they would trust they would know they need a savior they cannot save themselves that we are all wicked like chaff but you have come to deliver us from the domain of darkness and place us in the kingdom of love and light we ask this in christ's name amen